Greetings, fellow imps. I'm Imp Fossil Tom Hensky, and I'd like to welcome you to From Nowhere to Now Here, where incarnate memories prevail. Like many incoming first years, I entered the university a blank canvas. You get it, nowhere. But four years later, I grew to now here. And when I look back at that transformation, it was the friendships that I built through the imps that were a huge part of that growth. But where did everyone end up? I'm going to take us on a journey to find them, to catch up with the friends we've lost touch with. And in doing so, my mission is to rekindle these amazing relationships. Imp Nation, welcome back. Wow. I would normally introduce this guy as my Long Island brother from another mother, but today I'm not going to introduce Justin Rosalino as my Long Island brother, although his Long Island accent will help to offset Amy Mitch's accent from the last episode. (laughs) (laughs) Having said that, I want to welcome live from Charlottesville, Justin Rosalino. I thought I'd do something a little mellow and jazzy like We are imps. We are devils. We are marching, marching, marching. We don't care about the Zoomers. May they live in infamy. Here's my water water. Uh, we will all stand together, walk together, be together as the hot feet, hot feet, hot feet. You got that right. There ain't no sight like an imp on the marching spree. Yeah. I think oh. I got that right. Oh my God, you nailed it. And if you only knew, we had to go through 30 people to get some of the lyrics to that because we're all old and can't remember stuff anymore. Nobody knew it. I mean, like I was, I was uh, reaching out to like Tried and true, trusted imps. Uh, but everybody was like, dude, my brain is mush. I don't remember any of that. Well, you so. know, I-, I thought you were going to come into a different theme song. Hey. That was uh, what I thought you were going to do. So you threw me a curveball today. I thought that was your favorite song. That was a close second. Yeah, man. But I went with the imp chant. Oh, my the God. The best of my recollection. It's probably wrong. Or it's probably changed over the years, too. Who knows? Well, you know, this is like this whole experience for me is weird because you and I had so many laughs in college. And I cannot believe this is the first time in a long, 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 long time we're catching up. And it's a little bit dangerous for us to capture this first Rosalino Hensky get back together on a public forum. Right. It's a little weird. It could be a problem. It could be a problem. So I'm going to throw this at you. Check this out and see if you remember this. If I recall correctly, the last time you and I were supposed to get together one-on-one was for lunch in Manhattan. I want to say 15 years ago, maybe more. Okay. And I was driving a little beat up Civic with 300,000 miles on it. I mean, I was still really poor musician world at that point. And my car died, like died on the Jersey Turnpike. Like it, I don't have a car anymore. And I've got a guitar and like, a, you know, bags and whatever. 
And I called you and left you a voicemail at work like, Tom, I won't be at the lunch because I don't, I'm not there and I don't have a car anymore. And I'm in a financial apocalypse, but have a good day. And that was it. Oh, my first, my 20s, it was a story of one Toyota or Honda after another that just died horrible deaths. Now, was that your car at Oyster Bay High School on Long Island too? Or what was that just, a, was that a second car? That was a second car. The, the car I had in, in Oyster Bay, Long Island, during high school, I demolished junior year. Um, and this, you'll appreciate this because you're old school, blue collar-ish New York. So it was my fault. I demolished the car. I'm like in tears, walk home. And my parents are like, look, things happen. Life has problems, but um, we love you. We forgive you, but you're going to have to pay yourself to have the car fixed. And yeah, that's it. Hardcore parenting. I like it. Bring it back. So that's what I had to do. I found a mechanic. I worked my tail off all summer in a deli on Long Island and got the car fixed. Anyway, more than you needed to know. Well, you know, what people don't know about delis on Long Island is when you're a little, little kid and you go into the deli with your parents, they, the guy behind the counter gives you a little bite of food. And remember, they used to take the bologna and they would wrap the bologna up into like a little bologna kind of like square or I don't know, cylinder. And they would yes. get that. And that's what I remember from the Long Island delis. Me too. On a little toothpick sometimes. Yeah, I worked in that deli for seven years starting in middle school. That's a difference between parenting now and then. Right. I think, right. I was 12 and my dad was like, Hey, guess what? You have a job now. So bye. <laughs> Go work yeah. your job. So, okay. So take me back, man. Like take me back to high school. I know you grew up in a musical family. Uh, I know you started music at an early age. Give everyone some of the scoop. Remind everybody about who Justin is. Yeah, so um, grew up in Oyster Bay, Long Island, uh, about 20 miles-ish east of Manhattan, I think, which means an hour and a half, two hours by car. Um, my parents, uh, my dad was a musician professionally full-time when I was really little. Then he was a bartender, then he bought the bar, then it expanded and became a restaurant. So by the time I was in high school, he was deep in the restaurant business um, and even became a restaurant consultant. Um, after a while, my mom was a uh, Long Island, uh, uh, very kind of traditional, old school Catholic Long Island uh, secretary, administrative assistant, and a tough mom. And uh, she's great. They're both still living. Love them both. I did not necessarily have the kind of guidance from my family to make decisions about, you know, where should I go to college? So both my parents were, my, my mom had an associates. My dad went to a community college um, for four years. But, you know, there was a lot of mystery to them about like when she started talking about UNC, UVA, let alone like Vanderbilt, Rice, whatever. It's like they didn't really have any friends who went to those schools. And so I relied a lot on my classmates 
for like, um, where do I look at for, for college? Like, what are some places I should be checking out? And, um, the, and I asked the smart people, which is good advice. When in doubt, ask smart people and do what they do. So I asked the smart people and they said a bunch of schools, but one of them was UVA. And, um, you know, visited, I guess, my senior year. Uh, so kind of late and um, loved it. I mean, it's just the most beautiful of any place I looked at. And it had, it seemed to have the broadest, richest, most diverse offerings like in every way so um recreationally athletically academically it just sort of had so much going on um so ended up choosing UVA but that, that was kind of a weird scary time for me I mean I we're talking about being soft versus being tough um you know even though I was from a blue collar family and and we had our rough times for sure I, I was kind of the towny mama's boy. Like I realized when I went away to school, man, I've never been away from my parents for more than a week ever, you know, cause our vacations were together and we drove together and I never did sleep away camp, whatever. Um, I don't think I'd been out of Long Island for more than a week in my life. So I went down to UVA and, you know, culture shock and, it was just a very different place than I was used to. And so I literally showed up, I think, to uh, whatever uh, convocation or one of the first gatherings at UVA. And I remember vividly, I had like a um, ripped off sleeves. So like a makeshift tank top, Steve Miller band shirt. And I would, I lifted weights all the time. So I totally looked like a, Jersey Shore, Goomba, you know, probably my hair was slicked back and dropping F-bombs every third word. And, and that, that was. It was funny. I was just going to call you like a Snooky wannabe, but that wouldn't be right. It would actually, it was the situation was the guy yeah. in that, right? The situation, right? Situation is a pretty good comparison for at least the ideal, right? Of my, of my high school. There was a lot of a lot of situations. So yeah, UVA was a big change, man. Was it, did you feel that at all? Or you probably had more experience because of soccer, right? Yeah, I, I'd been traveling around the world um, before that. So I wouldn't call myself worldly because when I say travel along the, around the world, it's get in an airplane, go to a hotel, go to a field, go back to the hotel, go to a field, go back to the hotel, play a match, get in an airplane, come home. So yep. it, wasn't, it wasn't like I was uh, like touring and getting all cultured. Right. So, yeah. But it was, it was definitely, I'd been away. So um, for sure, I wasn't a mama's boy, but you know, it definitely was a little culture shock for me too. Right. I mean, cause it's Schultzville is a different place. Very different place, man. I mean, it's a beautiful place. It's just uh, people aren't as sarcastic. I mean, you, again, you know, I don't want to camp out for too long in New York, but um, you know, Long Island, man, like Jerry Seinfeld, that's standard. <laughs> you know? Just sarcasm, cutting, and also the, the George Costanza paranoia. Everybody's blunt, right? In Charlottesville, it was like, uh, hi, y'all. 
you know. Well, you know, I think what people want to know in your college choice is when you were looking, is the reason you chose UVA because you walked on the lawn and you saw a guy with a guitar surrounded by five beautiful women and that was kind of the sealer of the deal for you? That's what a lot of people have emailed in and that's what they wanted me to ask you ahead of this. So is that is, that, is there any truth to that? No, uh, I don't think so, but I did, I did have a friend from my high school uh, who was way older than me. He was a senior when I was a freshman in high school. Oh, so, way older. Oh my God. He's like three or four years older, man. That guy's <laughs> ancient now. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how in high school, that's like, I was terrified of him, but uh, he lived on the lawn. So I did my first UVA visit. I, like, he was my tour guide. He showed me around. We walked around the lawn. I think I probably saw Rob Seals. Wait, didn't you... Didn't you live on the lawn too? Didn't don't I remember? I did. Well, that's Which, pretty weird. It's probably you're probably the only two guys from your high school ever to get into UVA, and then both of those guys go on to live in the lawn. Holy cow, that's crazy! It is weird. And speaking for myself, when I got to UVA, I did not think I was going to live on the lawn. I, I was, you know, another part of the culture shock for me was like, man, there are capable people here. There are a lot of amazing, uh, talented, brilliant students, people my age, and there's thousands of them, right? And so uh, I just kind of, when I first got there, I was like, man, I'm going to like recede into the background and see how this shakes out. But the lawn was sort of like, oh, to me. So then, okay, you were doing tons of stuff. And I'm going to be all over the place in this interview. So I'm apologizing ahead of time. So Tell me about the Virginia Gentleman and how that came about, because th that was awesome. And that was one thing that you and I really bonded over. Not that I was in the Virginia Gentleman, but, you know, you did uh, the concert for the shootout cancer. You remember yeah. we did that. So how did you wind up joining Virginia Gentleman? Give us the road. Yeah. And, dude, I want to talk about that shootout cancer experience, too, because um, that was huge for me. But I kind of, I played guitar all through high school and started actually in middle school, like seventh, eighth grade. My dad was a guitar player. Um, but when I, I, so I was a guitar player and I knew music and I kind of hummed along with my guitar and sang a little bit in high school, but I, I wasn't like a choir guy. That was not cool in my high school. I never did plays, musicals, anything like that. Um, and then I, when I went to UVA, I tried out for the Glee Club, really because I tried out for everything. Like that first week where you like, I guess you go to U-Haul and there's, um, there's like kiosks for every club imaginable and they're all trying to recruit the new first years. And so I ended up like signing up to try out for Glee Club and uh, the director of the Glee Club and a couple of those guys who amazing people who kind of realized in my audition that I had no background in really formal singing or choir, but that I was a musician so that I could kind of read music. I could catch on super fast to things. So they were like, you could do this, man. Like you could really do this. And um, they accepted me into Greek club, even though I was really raw. And Glee Club was where I learned to read music well and sing much more confidently and learn things more quickly. 
And then I tried out for Virginia Gentleman, I guess spring of my first year um, and got in, which that was a shock to me. But uh, me and some of my best friends got, including Fish, Matt Fisher, Imp Baby. I don't know if he's been mentioned yet, but Fish and I got into the Virginia Gentleman at the same time, along with a few other buddies. And um, five of us were first year. So they called us the Fab Five after, uh, remember that incredible Michigan team? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that was huge. Yeah, I remember that. It was so cool. It was so cool. Chris Weber and those guys. Um, so we, um, we started, uh, sophomore, second year, uh, with VGs. Uh, did, did everyone see me wince there? Cause I dare to say sophomore, um, cause we don't say that at the university. No, you should, you're going to be punished. Um, we're going to levy a fine on you, uh, after this. So just, uh, it will be in the mail after this. That was really unbecoming an imp. I'm expecting a, a letter from alumni hall. Okay, so uh, started VG's sophomore year, VG's as we call it, and uh, that was great. And that is a crazy thing to do, man. Those acapella groups, I didn't realize how like intense and cultish, cultish, I think is a fair word. Yeah. In the way that like at college athletics kind of has to feel a bit cultish. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was your, do you, do you have a favorite song that you still walk around and hum or sing like from Dude, that? I have a few, man. And every once in a while um, there, you know, we used to do that uh, Paul Simon song, Cecilia. And uh, that one we love to sing because it was so, um, it was so fun and loud. And uh, we used to sing, gosh, what else? Uh, what did I say? Oh, Kiss by Prince, you know, uh, and I can't sing that anymore because it's so hot. I used to sing all those crazy high notes, and now I just don't, um, like, if you don't practice singing really high, you sort of lose it. So apparently I can get it back if I worked on it, but I just don't, like, spend a ton of time singing super high every day. So then, okay, so you're at the university, and then um, tell us about the university experience. I, that first year, man, the major theme was culture shock for me um, and also heartbreak. So I had dated a girl in high school that I had a crush on in only the way teenagers are capable of having crushes. It's like an insane pathological crush, like for years. And then we started dating my senior year of high school and like, this is the best and she's the one and we're going to go to different colleges and do the long distance thing. And it's going to work. It didn't work. What a shock. And everyone said, yeah, Thanksgiving, you'll be done. Right. And not us, not us. You don't understand. Us. Yeah. Thanksgiving, we were done. And then, um, so I was like nursing a lot of heartache about that because I'm a romantic um, slash wimpy, uh, hyper emotional guy. Uh, so then really spring of my first year, I started kind of investigating more of like, I got to pour myself into some stuff. So Virginia gentlemen kept singing with Glee club. I was kind of anti frat when I went to UVA. I thought it was like, this is, this feels weird paying to have friends. And my parents were like, what? It's just not very New York. So, um, I didn't really rush or anything my first year, but I ended up befriending all these DTDs 
many of whom were imps, right? So John Blank, Gray McLean, um, Barton Dick. Um, there were lots of uh, DTV imps. I'm forgetting a bunch of, oh, Charles Barron, uh, Brian Grant, lots. Um, and um, I just was very impressed with them. I was like, these are really great guys. And uh, even the DTD guys I met that were not um, imps and had nothing to do with that world, um, I just really liked. They were really diverse. Uh, there were a lot of musicians and artists and really smart people in DTD. Also a lot of like crazy, intense partiers. A lot of African-American brothers um, in DTD, which I also liked and kind of opened my mind a bit to, to frat world. So I ended up pledging um, my sophomore year, uh, second year, hit that edit button, Tom. Oh my God, edit. It's good. I'm, I'm going to have to pay extra for editing this, this month. Oh my I'm God. I'm in trouble. Um, You're so killing my bank account here with all those <laughs> references. Ready? Let me help you out. First, second, third, fourth years. There's no such thing as freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. That is that ended in 1991 for you. So stop referencing it. So did uh, campus. We don't say campus. We say the grounds. Uh, I corrected my wife on that the other day. She said campus. So I kicked her out. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. So did the DTD thing. Did the Glee Club Virginia Gentleman thing. Um, really started taking advantage more my second year of like of just trying to get to know uh, people from lots of different walks of life at UVA. And that to me is one of the best things about Virginia. If you take the opportunity, um, it can be an easy place to feel lost or it can be a place where you can kind of default to your comfort zone and just sort of do what you are already doing. But if you really take advantage of the opportunities, you can get to know a lot of different people from different, um, who have way different interests and backgrounds. So I also started singing with Black Voices, uh, the, the gospel choir, um, which at the time was like way predominantly African-American, as indicated by the title of the group. Um, Black voices. I was the, there was one white girl and me, uh, and I, it was about 250 people. Um, and I did that on a bet with a friend of mine, uh, an African American fellow student named Sammy Young, who I bet him, like, hey, Sammy, if I join Black voices, you have to audition for Virginia Gentleman, because I wanted him in VGs. And he was like, done, I'll do it. Uh, so I joined Black Voices, loved it. He never auditioned for. <laughs> <laughs> but I stayed with Black Voices for two years, I think, and um, made friends who played sports at UVA, yourself included. A lot of that was eventually through the imps. And sometimes I, I forget whether I got in spring of second year or third year. I don't remember, but I was in, I was in for at least two years. So um, like, that's like 1993? Three. Okay. Ish. Yeah. So John Blank and Gray McLean were the ones who brought me in. Um, and I knew Ben Arthur. 
got to know Robbie Grossman, uh, a guy I love. I don't know if he's been mentioned yet. Um, oh my God, he's been mentioned a ton, and he owes me an interview too. It's uh, you know he's living in Israel now. Dude, I have friends in Israel. It's not like it's impossible. And we zoom. Come on, Grossman. All right, you Grossman, Robbie, you heard it. Stop ducking me. You're interviewing. I'm, I'm calling him out. So anyway, if you're good with this, I want to tell the story of when Anna Yates and I brought in Barton Dick. Okay, anything, anytime I hear the word Anna Yates, that scares the living hell out of me. Yeah, that you should be scared. That means that this, the E for explicit has to go on the podcast label. It, um... So me, Anna, and um, there was one other person who was from uh, Judish. A judiciary committee and i forget who the third person who he was by far the most reasonable responsible person um so we it might have been gray or somebody like that but we um convened a meeting with barton and this would not fly today and shouldn't have flown back then but basically to confront barton with the news that hey anna yates is, is accusing you of being inappropriate with her at a frat party, of accosting her, I'll, I'll put it that way, at a frat party. So if you know Barton Dick, who is an athletic guy somewhat, but he's you know five foot eight, he's me, right? He's me. Anna Yates is not me. Anna Yates in a knockdown drag out situation, she wins, I lose, Barton, <laughs> Barton loses, right? So she, so Anna, we're having this incredibly awkward con confrontation slash conversation with Barton in a side room at DTD. And he's like, like beat red, like, wait, what? What's going on? And Anna's sitting there like trying, not, she's not good at faking anything. No. And so she's beat red you know, fighting back laughter. I think we lasted five minutes before uh, Anna just couldn't take it anymore. And we, and we confessed, no, we're, we're actually just wanting you to be an imp. Um, <laughs> so what was, do you remember his reaction? Dude, he, he was white as a ghost at first. And then, I mean, I really think we didn't go more than five minutes because that's a long five minutes. Oh my God. I have somebody on the hot seat for that. That's a, that's a long one. <laughs> but he erupted into laughter and, you know, some rage, but also appreciation. I think he wailed on my arm a couple of times, but he was excited and we brought him in and, and I got to, you know, laugh her butt off the rest of the night. It, it, it worked out okay. That's great. That's a good one. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So then what was going on at the end? Did you know where you were headed after college? Did you have a path that you were pursuing? Like what, what was the deal? I mean, yeah. for, for me, I was always thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to play pro soccer, but like, wh where was your head at? Yeah, I went, when I got to UVA, I um, really had, had drank the Kool-Aid on Long Island of, um, of cutthroat, ultra competitive, money, money, money. Wall. It was the days when I was a kid. It was the days of Wall Street, Gordon Gecko. Um, like that's what life is about: conquering and making money and having people think you're 
Cool. So I thought I was either going to go into um, business of some sort or go to law school, and uh, which is kind of a joke for people who know me well. Uh, but by my really by the spring semester of first year, I was like, I'm not interested in that anymore. I'm interested in I'm not sure what, but, uh, you know, Mr. Mead would say the pursuit of truth. Right. And even at DTD, this is one of the things I love about UVA. People ask me why UVA, what's unique and special about UVA. So at UVA, I uh, one day casually over lunch, um, I said something like, "Ah, I'm just going to take an easy class in the spring, a gut, we called it for an easy A to pad my GPA because I'm just looking to get into business or law school. And literally, this is my fraternity house. There are dudes who are hungover. There's literally Beavis and Butthead is on TV in the background. And two or three guys said to me, what? That's not why we're here. Greg McLean was one of them, but John Vick, another UVA guy, uh, DTD guy, and a few other guys were like, uh, that's not what education is for. We're here to learn. We're here to become educated, well-rounded, informed adults and to be civically responsible and to make the world a better place. I, I was like, what? That's deep. And at that time, 19-year-old me, that was very new to me, but it was really impactful for me. And there was a lot of that at UVA. Like people questioned um, themselves and others like why you know what is life really all about what you what should you be considering uh, as a vocation and so it was in that kind of context that I started thinking about well maybe I should um, be a musician or pursue this because it doesn't make any sense practically financially I mean the music business is crazy. There's so much subjectivity. They're, you're dependent on somebody's mood while they're listening to your demo and are they going to like it and uh, et cetera. But um, I just kind of thought, well, I have one life and people who I really like and admire and respect are saying, you know, maybe you should do music. You don't have to do something that's going to make you a million dollars. So basically, let me get this straight. So Justin Rosalino from UVA walks into this church yep. and says, I'd like to intern. That church is looking up at the sky and saying, thank you, God, for sending us this gift. Thank you. And he wants to intern. Well, and it probably, was it a paid internship? I think I got paid $12,000, I think. Me. And it might not even have been that. It was like, I lived... Yeah, twelve thousand, man. We could stretch that back in the day. That's that. That's that's not bad. I like that. My first year as a singer songwriter. Okay, my first year in Atlanta, um, I made a total of fourteen thousand dollars, and I had an accountant, a friend of mine, do my taxes, and he was like, "Brother, uh, how are you living? Like this, you have got to get." Uh, generate more income, which he was definitely right about that. But you know, um, I don't want to. I don't want to one up you. But my first year in my first job, which was commission sales, okay, and I'm not just making this up. But this is a true number. I made thirteen thousand dollars. Okay, oh and so I was one thousand behind you 
It was so bad that the CEO of the company looking at the numbers said, who is Tom Hensky and what is he doing in my company? No, wait, did you literally get that kind of feedback from? Oh, yeah. And some guy saved my behind who happened to be in the meeting and said, he's going to be fine. He's an athlete. He'll get through it. He's just slow starting, which, you know, any one of the imps could have told you I was going to be slow starting. Like, <laughs> Really good on the intention front, not really so great on the execution front, but okay. Yeah, but then how did you get your now wife, Brooke? I, I want to know, how did you get her? Did you like have a guitar in your hand when she met you? Like, what what was the deal? Because I mean, you really like, I mean, oh. Brooke, if you're listening to this, I mean, you didn't, I mean, you got Justin, not such a great deal for you, right? And I, if she was here, she would probably say, yeah, yeah, I think. That's a good point, Tom. Yeah, uh, Brooke is is beautiful, I think, objectively. And so um, here's my secret. And I, I did discover this at UVA, something called stage advantage. So if you're physically <laughs> on a stage with a guitar, um, that, that is a, that's winsome. That is an advantage. It makes you a, a couple notches more attractive. Kind of like the interviewer of a podcast, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, I get, I get that same thing. The everyone flocks to me because of you know my huge listenership, and you know, I'm, I'm a star. I'm a podcast oh, yeah. star now. Not to mention the the moolah you're making. From oh my god, it's like retirement. Here we come. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, but I did. I married up, man. So. I was playing a show in uh, Dallas, Texas, maybe 14 years ago. Um, and she was there. She came early because she knew someone in the band. I was dating another gal at the time, but I definitely thought she was super cute and cool. And a bunch of us went out to dinner afterward. And I just thought, man, this girl is amazing. She's got the, Tom Hensky joy optimism thing for real you guys actually um in terms of personality type and vocation you have a lot in common and uh, I am grateful for her big time um, okay so I took us off sorry typical uh Justin Tom fashion we got sidetracked so you graduate UVA and then take me through that path what was going yeah. on um Man, crazy. So the hardest thing about going to a real UVA is, is still a top school. It was a top school and it's a top 20 school. If you're if you go to a top 20 school, there are tons of benefits to that. Obviously, one of the drawbacks can be that if you're doing something unconventional, it feels really lonely and weird. Right. So I was like, man, this is crazy. I'm going to be a musician and I have friends who are starting first year at, uh, you know, major banks and top accounting firms and top management consultant firms, et cetera. And I am living in my friend's parents' basement, which I was, playing open mic nights in Atlanta. Uh, I, I worked at a booking agency part-time for a year, my first year in Atlanta, which was a great experience. We uh, we're a booking agency that booked pretty big bands, actually. Um, uh, Hootie and the Blowfish before I got there. Um, Edwin McCain, some other big college bands. Driving and Crying and 
Um, and so I got to know that side of the business, the sort of, which does have a cold call element to it of uh, giving and receiving a lot of, a lot of, uh, or making and receiving a lot of cold calls to venues and booking new artists and stuff. And that's how I learned to book shows for myself. Um, and I started doing open mic nights all around Atlanta and slowly gaining a following. And then I started doing like competitions where there's a great venue in Atlanta called Eddie's Attic. It's the place that launched the careers of people like the Indigo Girls, John Mayer, um, uh, India Ari, the R&B artist, uh, lots of others. Um, and um, played there, did some competitions there, did really well. Yeah, didn't you win something there? Well, didn't you win some sort of competition there? Or, or do I have that right, or did I make that up in my head? I don't know if I won it or came in second, but it was a songwriters, I forget what they called it, but they would have it like once or twice a year. And it was the kind of thing, I think John Mayer won it two years or a year after I did. John Mayer was the doorman at Eddie's Attic. So John, I would call over there to book a show and sometimes I'd get John. Um, and, uh, and, some, and sometimes I'd get Eddie. There was an actual Eddie um, at, who ran the club. But John, man, I knew that guy was gonna explode into icon status because one day I was having my CD release party back when people actually bought CDs um, and back when it was much easier to make a living as a musician um, because, because of CDs and selling vinyl, you just made much more money per unit sold. So my CD release party, I sold 50 CDs, which is a lot because I would make $12 per CD. So I, I sold out two shows that night so that meant like, I don't know, 800 people plus 50 CDs. And I got 80% of the door and I got 10 out of every $15 or whatever per CD. So I thought I was like, dude, I'm headed for mega stardom and mansion time here. Um, and then like literally two weeks later, I call Eddie's and John Mayer answers the phone. And uh, he's like, dude, I got, I had my CD release party last night too. I was like, John, how did it go? It's like, I sold 300 CDs. It's like, John, that's wow. a lot. That's a lot, bro. And so quickly I could see, because I was doing well, but, and other people were doing well. There was like 10, at any given time in any city, there's like 10 or 15 bands or solo artists or what have you that are kind of got a buzz and, and getting a lot of, people to come to shows, but John was like, and then like two years later after that, I was like, oh, you're doing a concert with Sting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're playing on Eric Clapton's new album. Okay. So um, anyway. Me, me too, me too. <laughs> <laughs> me too. So, um, but I did that uh, kind of folk singer songwriter thing for about five years. Um, and up and down the East Coast, I toured and uh, at my peak of doing that, I would have a venue, like a home venue in every city that I would usually either sell out or do have a good crowd. 
and sell my CDs and, and drive my little Honda Civic. And that was that. Um, but I, I started noticing in the early 2000s that the music business was changing, um, that things were going to go digital and streaming, uh, less CD sales, less live. There were less people coming to shows, I was noticing. Um, and some of that is I was just getting older. Um, and oh, it's, no, it was because of COVID, right? Isn't that the <laughs> excuse? <laughs> Everything's COVID. Everything, that's right. In 2003, it was because of COVID. Yeah, there was COVID there. We just didn't identify it as COVID. Yeah, right. it was, you know, one of those things. To identify it. Um, so I started making plans, and I had already had plans. Like, I never felt like I was going to be a musician for life. And Mr. Mead, my music professor in college, and really my mentor at UVA, um, uh, he kind of told me basically, dude, you're not going to do this for life. You are way too academic and you love intellectual rabbit trails. You're going to end up in a classroom or in an academic setting in some, in some way. Um, and, he, and he was wrong, right? Of course. He was, he was wrong. dead wrong. I was like, we're done, Mr. Mead. Um, <laughs> No, I, so I mean, I always felt that way too. And, and that was the other thing I had considered for years, even at UVA was maybe I want to be an academic. Maybe I want to go do the, the whole PhD route and um, teach at the college level. And so that was always in the back of my mind. And so I started in the early 2000s, slowly shifting gears and doing more uh, freelance sideman work in the music business. So playing guitar for other artists and on recordings. So uh, eventually I moved to Nashville because more and more of the artists I was working with were in Nashville, doing studio work, playing with them, uh, got to do some really cool stuff, played, but I really started thinking 05, 06, it might be time to do the grad school thing. I was getting serious. Um, with Brooke or, or thinking about that at least. So I went back to school, Vanderbilt Divinity School, which is a stupid name um, because nobody is really a master of divinity, but it's basically a theological religious studies, church history uh, kind of um, graduate school um, because that was my main academic interest, things like philosophy, theology. Uh, which have no money in it, M no money in them at all. You get paid even less uh, than your first year as a musician. Yeah, I think they were paying in Bitcoin back then, right? <laughs> That's right, pre, pre, oh, pre or, I, I should say Ripple because of uh, Tim Kunihiro. So not Bitcoin, Tim, if you're listening. I meant to say Ripple. Yeah. Much respect, Tim. Um, uh, so uh, did Vanderbilt for three years, loved it, poured myself into it, um, and really excelled there academically. And at that point, uh, PhD possibilities were, were on the table. Um, and uh, I knew I needed a little break, though, from academia, so I, uh, or, or the, the higher ed world. So I decided to teach for a while and got a job uh, in 2010 teaching at a school called Brentwood Academy in Nashville. Great, great school. Um, so I ended up loving teaching and working in high school. 
And uh, the problem with teaching is if you do well, they promote you. And, <laughs> and they start giving you more administrative jobs. So a few years in, I became department chair of the history department. It's a pretty big school. So uh, 13, 14 teachers in a department. Um, so I had to learn about leadership and management. And, uh, uh, and I'm indebted to the headmaster there for showing me the ropes on that. And then um, I did end up applying to PhD programs and got into my dream schools. And when my wife and I did the math and we took out some whiteboards and did some pros and cons lists, we waited to see what kind of scholarships and financial aid I got. And when we looked at the pros and cons list, we took about two months and decided we're not going to do a PhD program because the programs I was looking at were like four or five years. One of them was at a school in England where uh, people tend to go into massive debt, um, the way pay is structured over there for those programs. So we didn't do it. And we closed the door on that and decided I'm going to stay at the, sec uh, at the secondary education level, at the middle and high school level, um, which I have loved. Um, so we moved to Waco, Texas, five years ago, which was a surprise because we lived in Nashville for almost 10 years. Uh, and still most of our closest friends and my family are in Nashville. And so um, it's hard to leave Nashville. It's a really cool city. Most of our friends there are artists, musicians. Um, many of, at this point in my life, most of my musician friends have either, either went broke at some point and changed careers drastically or are now famous and multimillionaires. And there's- yeah, I was going to ask you that. I was going to just ask you that question. Any regret? Um, you know, um, once in a while, but I feel a lot of, I felt a lot of clarity about it. I felt like, and I'm also the kind of guy that's like, that's not the most important thing in life. You know, it is important. Your vocation, your career, I mean, it's where you're going to spend so much time um, and invest so much of yourself. So you better try and find something you like and believe in. But um I try to not make decisions based on what my ego on my worst days, what my ego clamors for, right? So I call it my fifth grade motives, my fifth grade self. Like my fifth grade self wants everybody to notice me and know my name and think I'm cool. Um, my more adult self is like, well, it's also important to try and love and care for people and for myself. To, to try and make my community a better place, to be a good neighbor, um, to be a really as good of a dad as I can. And I really wanted to be a, a husband and a dad. And I felt like it's really hard to do that, bro, in the music world. I do have a few friends uh, and I'm gonna shout out to a producer friend of mine. Um, we're not super close friends, but he's a friend and I really love this guy. His name's Ed Cash, and he's probably one of the top Christian music producers in Nashville. He has managed to stay married and have a bunch of kids and uh, have a really sane, fruitful life. 
But I got a lot of friends, bro, who are uh, have have broken homes by this point. You know, their marriages suffered, their their relationships with their kids suffered. Uh, you know, being on the road. I had one year I was gone 240 days. So that year I didn't have a home address. Uh, literally, I was like, I'll, I just have a PO box because I'm never here. And when I'm here, I'll just pay somebody 500 bucks to stay at their house for three or three weeks or something. And, or I don't know, buy them new dishware or something. 500 bucks. That's a lot. I never did that. Um, but yeah, so I don't, you know, once in a while, my ego is like, man, like I got a lot of um, several friends that are in pretty big country bands now, like the Zach Brown band and the, um, um, et cetera. So yeah, there are times I'm like, man, I used to jam with those guys and we're still friends, um, but I'm not doing that. I'm in Waco, Texas, working for a nonprofit. So we're- yeah, Tell me about that. So what are you doing now? That's, that's great. Tell me about that. I did the schooling thing for 10 years and actually the last four years, when I say schooling, working in schools, working in high schools, the last four years of that, I was dean of a school, which is scary, here in Waco, um, which I loved, uh, called Live Oak Classical School, amazing school. Um, but the last year, I've been working for a foundation, a nonprofit uh, here in Waco called the Magnolia Foundation. And that honestly um, reminds me of shootout cancer back in the day, uh, or makes me think of it because what you, I mean, you obviously were the cheerleader spearhead mastermind of, of shootout cancer at UVA, which I'm assuming you've talked about at some point on a, okay. Yeah, we have. Um, so being a part of that dude, um, was really fun for me and actually fairly pivotal because I think I arranged, um, I organized an acapella concert, um, which went really well. And we sold, had a lot of people come, sold a lot of tickets. Wait, wait, just let me interrupt. That was phenomenal. That, was, you, that, was, that was great. I mean, and not just because of the money that we raised. I mean, people loved that. That was great. It was great. It was fun. And all the groups that at that time, there was actually animosity and competition between these acapella groups, which sounds so weird, but if you've seen Pitch Perfect, you'll you'll get it. Um, so, uh, but we all got together and did this. It was great. And I did a, uh, a concert at DTV where we sold tickets and gave the money to shoot out cancer, a couple other things. And just this idea that I think that year we raised over $20,000-ish um, to fight cancer. To, um, and, that really sparked in me this, or gave me vision for, man, I can have impact on things that uh, really need constant, um, constant investment from people who want to make a difference. So cancer just needs ongoing, continued support and investment from regular, ordinary people if we're going to beat this thing. Um, and to support those who are rest, who are dealing with it. Um, and so that gave me a taste for that kind of work, you know, and, and I, oh, I really, since then, have always taken philanthropy 
really seriously um, and got involved in some some philanthropies and nonprofits out of college, including uh, an international organization that works to prevent human trafficking called Inter International Justice Mission. I've supported them in various ways for 20 years now. Um, uh, I worked with a group called Exile International that does incredible work in Congo, okay, so Exile International, I did some fundraising for them, some development work, and this was just me doing it on the side for free. I wasn't paid by them or anything. And now I'm working for Magnolia Foundation, which can I tell you, tell you the weird story of how I got the job? Okay. Dark, go ahead. So I was, we were all set to move to Dallas because I was gonna be the headmaster, which is even more scary than being the dean. Um, I was going to be the headmaster of a great little school there, a fledgling school called um, uh, Classical School of Dallas in East Dallas. Uh, amazing people. Shout out to them. But um, we were looking at real estate there. We were getting ready to move. My wife was getting ready to switch her work over there. Um, and then I got a call uh, one afternoon and like, randomly three in the afternoon for on my cell phone from Joanna Gaines. So some of your listeners will know who that is. Some won't. Joanna um, and her husband, Chip have a uh, TV show called Fixer Upper and a company here in Waco called Magnolia. Um, and they've been, Chip and Joe have lived here for, I don't know, 25, 30 years or something. They're basically native Way Cohen's, they've been in that line of work for that whole time, have had many periods of struggle, which they're very honest about. So they've had struggles like you and I have had struggles, Tom, financially and otherwise. But, you know, five, six years ago, randomly, nobody saw it coming. They had this runaway hit TV show. Yeah, I know. And I think he wrote a book too. Right? Yeah, a few at this point. So, Chip and Joe both, she's written a children's book and she has some recipe books. Chip has two books now. Um, and, um, and they've got a zillion, they, they just launched a network last week, a network like the Oprah network. So they got so big that they have a network that is, you know, Chip and Joe's network. They basically pick the programming and, and the, the shows are sort of in the style, generally, of uh, Fixer Upper and Magnolia. So uh, Joanna calls me, and they're amazing people. They're big-hearted people. Uh, Joanna calls me and says, listen, uh, I know you guys are getting ready to move, um, but I've been thinking a lot about Waco and the country in general and Waco is a great place but it's also a place where some of the injustice that we see nationwide is is really almost exaggerated or it stands out in really stark relief here and so she's kind of like I want to do something about that but I don't it feels really overwhelming and confusing and I'm not sure what the something is and so we end up having two or three really long conversations about that. And she 
sends me some clips from a documentary and I sent her some and, um, and uh, by the third or fourth phone call, I was kind of like, are you offering me a job? Is this, are you asking me not to move to Dallas? And she said, yes. So she hired me, long story short, to do this special project for the Magnolia Foundation, which is basically, I spent the last year researching and then making proposals for um, proposals for action in addressing those issues in Waco. And some of those are, propo are proposed minor efforts, um, maybe uh, adding some financial support to some work that's already happening here, et cetera. But one or two of the things we're looking at are massive. And one of them, I really can't go fully into detail yet. Um, but it would, if it comes through and there's so many moving parts and so many diverse partners involved in this thing, if it comes to fruition, it's going to be national news, man. It's going to, uh, we're talking about resurrecting some historic buildings and historic sites that were once extremely meaningful for a once vibrant black middle class in Waco that all but evaporated. Um, and uh, it's really cool stuff. It's the biggest thing I've ever done. Highest stakes, most impactful, most satisfaction I've ever felt from a job. So that plays into my answer to your question about regret, right? So there are times I'm like, man, I miss sleeping till 11 a.m. Uh, eating out every meal on the road and having 5,000 people go, yay, yay. It, that feels pretty good, right? Um, but man, some of the stuff I'm getting to do now, I'm like, it's crazy. And I'm really grateful. So that's I awesome. I, I keep using the word uh, epic in these podcasts, but that would be epic. That's awesome. It's epic even if it doesn't come off the ground, just to be involved in the conversation on something like that is awesome. I'm with you, man. I'm really, really grateful. And such good stuff has come out of it. Even if the, the biggest, uh, the big dream we have for it, even if that doesn't fully come to fruition, it's already put so many other balls in motion for, for Waco and Central Texas, and we're seeing huge fruit. So, so does, that, does that lead into advice you would give the imps today they're in school? Is there, some, is there a tie there? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I think UVA does a good job of trying to inspire and challenge its students to um, think a little bit bigger than the bottom line, right? Um, it, it's, it's great to pursue a, a career that is financially rewarding. That's nothing wrong with that. Um, and you can do a lot of good doing that. But um, I think uh, to summarize or to, I get, yeah, to really borrow a phrase that um, Barack Obama and John McCain used to use almost the exact same phrase when Obama was in office and when McCain was running against him, they would often talk about um, pouring into something that is bigger than yourself. Uh, getting involved in something that's not all about you. Um, 
So sometimes we just call that giving back. But um, I like that idea of something that's beyond and above and outside of yourself. Uh, there's nothing like the satisfaction of doing something like that. I mean, parenting is about that to a large extent. Um, uh, being a spouse is about that. But um, just thinking about your life in those terms, and sometimes that just might mean you're going to be a banker with a huge conscience and who really gets involved in, in various philanthropic um, efforts. I mean, Gray McLean. Gray McLean killed it in business um, and crushed it financially and now works full-time for a foundation that he started and founded and is doing amazing work in really throughout Virginia, um, not just Charlottesville. So um, that's what I would say to the imps like uh, of today, you know, look at, get inspired and excited about something that, um, involves you getting outside yourself or doing something that's beyond yourself. Yeah. We always, um, we talk about the IMP words, like words with IMP that as you start to say that, I think of things that are important, right? Important. Yes. are really important in life. Uh, you know, with your religious studies and having like a deep, too deep a conversation, it's kind of like uh, for me, it was just the tool that I was giving to be able to have a profound impact on other people. Right. So yep. it, it was a lot of ego at the time. The gift that I got from it wound up just being the ability to have a voice and mm -hmm. to be heard and to be able to influence in positive ways. And that's kind of exactly what you're talking about with Magnolia. Yep. Yep. That's it, man. So that would, uh, I would just, encourage present imps to, uh, you know, if you're not thinking that way already, start trying to think that way and, and get excited about that and get excited about that aspect of your, of your life. Justin Rosalino, my man, it was awesome catching up with you. I mean, talk about, Talk about greatness. Uh, you're great for all the right reasons and love catching up with you. And as I said in the beginning of the show, we haven't talked in a long time, but this just rekindled for me personally, all the reasons that I was friends with you back in the day uh, because of the leadership that you take on, the way you think about life and the fun you have. And I think that that's, um, that's something that I wanted to be around and a lot of other people wanted to be around. And it's just kind of cool that we could be around it again. Uh, albeit from uh, thousands of miles away, this was awesome. Dude, I feel the same way. So I can't wait to get on the phone and have some more substantive uh, catch up time with you. So uh, it was great to get back in touch and I, I don't wish COVID on any, anyone or any culture or any period of history, but there have been some good, cool things that have come out of it, like Zoom, like these kind of reconnections. You know, talking to, I talked to Courtney Page. I've been talking more to Gray McLean and uh, Toy O'Farrell, who was a uh, imp uh, as well, and other folks that uh, I haven't talked to in a long time that, COVID has provided some opportunity for that, for reconnection. And I'm grateful for that and grateful to uh, get to connect, man. 
Awesome. Justin, you're the best for joining me today. Brother, I love you. Love you too, man. All right, Imp Nation. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned. We have some great interviews coming up as well. And if anyone needs me, just respond back to the emails that I send off every two weeks. Uh, Glad to help. Thanks, Imp Nation. And Justin, take care. You too, brother. Hi there, Tom here. Before I let you go, I want to tell you about my other podcast, Total Sense. As you may know, after my time as an imp, I went on to become a financial advisor. Okay, stop laughing. Don't act so surprised. In each episode, I share advice to parents about how to talk to kids about money. As a parent, I know how difficult that money conversation can be, so I hope you'll listen and find it helpful. It's Total Sense, C-E-N-T-S, as in money, available anywhere you get your podcasts.